Our scripture passage this morning is selected verses. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because I love, you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know you, they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Okay, well, they say that it's the preacher's job to be a bridge between two worlds, to look back at the ancient world of the Bible and then attempt to connect it to the modern world that we live in. And so often it's my job to take a text that might seem distant or obscure or hard to understand and then answer the question, what on earth does this have to do with me? Uh, but today, that's really an easy task. Because today, we are dealing with a, ta- a, a text that is literally about you. This is a special moment. It is a unique moment. It is a, a glorious moment in the history of the world. Because it is the moment when Jesus, who was only a few hours away from his crucifixion, prayed a prayer for you. And it's a prayer that, as you read it, you'll see it teaches us a lot about who he is. It teaches us a lot about his intentions and his desires for the church. But what's really cool is that it doesn't just teach us that, but the power of his prayer continues throughout history. Up to this very moment, the effects of this prayer, we're seeing them play out right now in this very room. And so as we look at this passage this morning, what I want us to see first is Jesus's beautiful desires for the people of God. And especially as we dig into the the portion we're looking at this morning, I want us to see how he longs for us to be united with one another in the kind of community that really all of us are looking for. The kind of community that we're longing for deep down. The kind of community that only the gospel can really produce. And so, to make that happen, to make that kind of community occur, here is how Jesus prays for you. First, he prays for a strong foundation. 
Secondly, he prays for our unity and our witness. And then thirdly, he prays with power. So that's what we're talking about this morning. He prays for a strong foundation. He prays for our unity and witness. And he prays with power. Let's talk about that strong foundation first. Uh, When Jesus opens this prayer, he first prays for himself. To give you a little bit of context where we are, if you haven't been with us in a while, uh, we have actually been reading about this same night for a couple of months now. This evening began all the way back in John chapter 13. Do you remember that story where Jesus was washing the disciples' feet? In that passage, one of the things John told us was that Jesus was keenly aware of who he was before he washed his feet. He says that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God, and that he was returning to God. And here in our passage today, as Jesus begins to pray, he starts off by acknowledging that's the reality that we're, we're dealing with. He openly states this mind-blowing mystery that for Jesus to be on earth, it was costly for him. Do you ever think about that? For Jesus to be on earth, there was an emptying that had to happen for a time. But now as he's praying, as he's thinking about the cross and what's coming afterwards, he prays because he knows that he's once again, he's going to take on his full glory again at the Father's side. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So as we see that, one thing you need to notice is that Jesus is totally aware of the cosmic significance of his life and death. Jesus knew what was going on. You can't read a verse like that and think that Jesus thought of himself as just a wise teacher. Right? You can't read a verse like that and think that Jesus was just some kind of special miracle worker. No, he openly spoke about who he was. Jesus acknowledged that he had existed before the world began and that he was returning to the Father. And so the basis of this whole prayer that he's going to pray, it rests not on the fact that he's going to go and die, but that he's going to rise again and that he's going to continue to rule and reign over the earth long after this moment. So it's his resurrection. It's his ascension to the throne that is the foundation of who he is, of the prayer he prays. It's the foundation of the faith of these disciples. It's the, it's the foundation of this church, right? And there's a lot we can learn just from the fact that Jesus is praying in this moment. I hope you get a chance to go back and read through all the verses we don't have time to to go over this morning. But but if you take some time and read through this whole passage slowly, what you will realize pretty quickly is that Jesus has a deep confidence in God as he prays. And he is completely aware of the necessity of his prayer. He's confident in God and he's He's also praying because he believes that prayer is necessary, that prayer is important. And we believe that too, right? As as a church, we have lots of theology that tells us we should pray. We believe that prayer is significant and prayer is important. And yet, prayer seems to be 
the most neglected part of our spiritual lives, right? Prayer is something that we tend to ignore, that we tend to overlook. And why is that? I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons. I, I think that we're distracted. I think that we, 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 it's hard to focus. But I also think that prayer is, at its core, it's very mysterious. Prayer is a completely spiritual activity. Even to attempt to pray requires some amount of faith, right? And we live in this world where that doesn't make a lot of sense. We live in a world that is a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of world. We live in a world where everybody is telling us, well, the solution to your problem is you need to try harder. You need to get to work. You need to do your part. You need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's how you get a solution. In that kind of reality, prayer doesn't make a lot of sense. But Jesus shows us something different. Jesus, in his final hours, not just here, but also in the Garden of Gethsemane, after this prayer, Jesus, we see him praying and crying out to the Lord. And if Jesus needs to pray, then we need to pray. Think about it. If there was ever somebody who could maybe just buckle down and try harder and make things happen, If there was ever somebody who could just get things done, who could be more effective without prayer, it would have been Jesus, right? But no. Jesus prays. He knows the power of prayer. He understands that this world is not what you see is what you get. He understands that in this world there is a constant battle happening between good and evil and that this is a battle we can only fight on our knees before the Lord. And so he prays. Jesus prays for the disciples. He prays for the foundation of this church. And and really quickly, here's some of the, the, the highlights of the things he prays for those leaders. In verse 11, he prays that they would be protected from evil. And that they would stay unified in the work that was coming. In verse 13, he prays that they would be filled with joy. Even in a world that's full of sorrow and suffering and temptation. Even in a world that will hate them and reject them. In verse 17, he prays that they would be sanctified in the truth. That they would be rooted in the word of God. And that their actions and their teachings would reflect Jesus. And then finally, in verse 18, he prays that they would carry the message out into the world. That was Jesus' prayer. And what's, what's neat is we can look at history and we can see just how effective that prayer was, right? We can look back and we can see, you know what? God answered those prayers. God did those things for the disciples. God built his church on their unity. But maybe the coolest part of all of this is that this prayer is still being answered because Jesus didn't just pray for the disciples he didn't just pray for those apostles who lived a couple thousand years ago but he prayed for you and he prayed for me and what did he pray for us well that's the second thing we're going to look at he prayed for our unity and he prayed for our witness so if you open up your bibles and look back at verse 21 
Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So Jesus' prayer for us is first and foremost a prayer for unity. Everybody say unity. Unity. Unity is the goal and the product of the gospel message. If you read the book of Ephesians, when Paul is trying to explain what, what this whole gospel is about, what this great mystery is that God has kept hidden, but now he's revealed it through Jesus Christ, it says this. He says, God made known to us this mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. And here's the mystery. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Scripture tells us that the trajectory of the universe is that all things are going to unite one day under Christ's lordship. The, the, the purpose of all of this is that everyone and everything will be united. And the church is where that begins. In Colossians, Paul says the church is the place where we start to see this unity take place at the cross. It's here in Christ. There is no Jew or Gentile. There's not circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and he's in all. Now, I want to be clear. When we're talking about unity, we've got to pay attention to what that word means in this context. Because what Jesus is praying for, what the church is looking for, is not some kind of kumbaya, kind of mushy, bland togetherness. Right? It, it is not what the rest of the world calls unity. Uh, when I was up in Boston... There were regularly opportunities for all the clergy around the city to come together uh, around different important causes. So around issues of injustice or neighborhood violence or something like that, there'd be these big meetings that are called and all the clergy would go and show up. And on occasion, I would go to, to show the support and the support of our church for these things. And, but one of the things that drove me crazy about those meetings was that when we got all of these different clergy people together, it, it kind of felt like it was all for show. It kind of felt like it was for the cameras to be put on the newspaper or, or, or on TV. You know, they'd have these pastors from different religions. They'd have Unitarian pastors. They'd even have atheist clergy people show up at these things. And they'd pray. Somebody would pray, and the prayer they would pray would be, this intentionally vague, kind of meaningless prayer. It was designed so that nobody would be offended. So yeah, they, they could get a bunch of people together for that moment, but there wasn't any real unity there. There wasn't any common identity in that group. And I say that because I want you to understand that when Jesus is praying for unity, he's not just praying for some kind of ceasefire. He's not praying that, that we would 
reach the lowest common denominator, that we'd stop focusing on doctrine and we'd just let bygones be bygones. No, this is an extension of that prayer he just prayed for the disciples. He's praying for a unity that's rooted in truth. A unity that that is founded on the unity of the apostles. That is rooted in, in the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. And most importantly, he is praying for the kind of unity that only comes about when people know that they have had their sins washed away by the blood of the cross. The unity that comes when people have a new identity. An identity that only comes from Christ. That, that people are unified because they are in Christ. That's exactly what he prays, right? He says it in verse 21. We just read it a second ago. He says that, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He says, just as you are in me, and I am in you. The prayer is that we would be united because we are all together in him, right? And it's easy to get pessimistic when we think about that. When we step back and we look at the church and we see all these silly moments of infighting. But I do think we also see the reality of this playing out today. I do think we see this unity taking place in the world. And when you see it, it's actually pretty incredible. Yeah, of course. There, there's no getting around the fact that we have our little disagreements, right? In the church, we have thousands of denominations. We have disagreements over the finer points of certain doctrines, but this is also true. If you travel around the globe today, if you go to the exact other side of the world and you encounter someone that knows Jesus, there is instantly between you and that person a sense of connection. Is there not? You can go anywhere on this globe and you can find another person that you can call brother or sister. And that is a reality that has been brought about by God himself. See, unity, that kind of unity is a product of the gospel at work. We are a part of a church that is built of, of people that span thousands of years, millions of miles, and we are all connected in this one faith, built on the apostles and the prophets, resting in the righteousness of Christ. We are all one in him. It's a reality. And that unity, Jesus tells us in his prayer, it, it has a purpose, a practical purpose. He says that our unity makes a difference in the world. Our unity is a witness. Everybody say witness. Our unity is a witness. Verse 21, it says, May they be one as we are one so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Verse 23, he says, Complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them 
even as you've loved me. Our unity is a witness to the reality of Christ. And it's worth saying, if our unity witnesses to Christ's reality, well, then our disunity, our division, our infighting, our pettiness is also a witness, right? What's it a witness to? Well, it's a witness to the grip of sin that remains in our lives. We need to pay attention to that. Because today you can go onto any social media site and you can read about the thousands of young people who are walking away from the church. There's hashtags, right? People referring to themselves as exvangelicals. And if you read their stories, oftentimes it's not that they rejected the foundational doctrines of the church, it's that they rejected the mess. <laughs> that they found inside the church. See, our, our unity in, in the church, it testifies that the gospel is real. But our disunity shows the opposite. And we gotta keep moving because there's a lot in this passage, but I just wanna take a, an aside to say, really practically speaking, if you right now in this room are in conflict with someone in the church, don't brush it off. Don't treat that lightly. Don't just move on. But do everything you can to mend that relationship. Do everything that you can to heal that rift because division in the church, it destroys the witness of the gospel. And you don't know who else that rift is impacting. Do what you can. Go and, 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 and reconcile with your brother and sister. Because as we live together united, forgiving each other, offering forgiveness, seeking forgiveness, it is a glorious witness to the world that God really does exist, that he really does forgive sins, that he really does unite us together. And here's one other way that I want to point out our unity as a witness. So it's easiest to, to be with people who are like you, right? Can we all agree on that? Right? When we choose who we're going to hang out with, we usually, we become a part of affinity groups, right? So we join the, the hot rod club or the, the craft beer club or uh, the book club or whatever. But generally speaking, we want to hang out with people who are into the same things that we're into, probably about, about our same age, have a similar background. Those, those are the kinds of people that we hang out with. But the church is not an affinity group. The church is the exact opposite of an affinity group because this is not a, a group that, that we've formed based off of our own preferences, but in fact, this is a community gathered by God himself, called by the Holy Spirit. And that means that healthy churches, well, this is kind of weird, but healthy churches, they're going to have a lot of people in them that, that you wouldn't choose to hang out with, right? They're going to have a lot of people in them that are, are different from you. I remember there was this one guy uh, that I met in church when I was younger, and 
I, I remember talking to him at some little fellowship time after a service, and I just realized, you know, he was really awkward. And as we're trying to keep a conversation going, and we can't for, you know, one or two minutes, they're just looking down at our feet with our hands in our pockets. We realized, like, we just don't have much in common. And his mannerisms to me, they were kind of off-putting. But we were members of the same church. And what happened was we just started doing life together. Over the course of many years, you know, I was around this person all the time, and I got to, to know him, and I got to understand him. And you know what happened? After a while, I began to realize that this guy was a gift to me. As I got to know him, I just started to see so much of Jesus in him. I saw his heart to serve. I saw how giving he was with his time and his energy. And I realized that if God had not put us together in the church, I would have missed all of that. See, the church is meant to be that way. Jesus prayed that it would be that way, that it would be a group of people made up of, of all different ages, from every segment of society, that, that it would have a, the kind of unity that is shocking so that it would witness to the world, that the church would be the kind of place that when you, when you walk in and you see the people worshiping together, you say, how did this even happen? How did these ragtag misfits ever get together in the first place? How are these people friends? How have they become a family? The church should be the kind of place that when you see us all worshiping together, you cannot help but think, there must be a God. That's what Jesus prayed for. He prayed for our unity, and he prayed for our witness. And the third thing we see is that when he prayed those things, he prayed with power. Do not underestimate how deeply our world is longing for the kind of unity we're talking about. Just this week, I was talking to a student, and she was telling me how, how deeply she was looking for a place where she could come and just be herself, how much she wanted a place where she could be welcomed and where she could belong and where she, she would not have to be afraid. People are looking for that place. They're looking for the place where they can come as they are. And be accepted and welcomed. And do you know that the church is the only place on earth with the resources to be that place? Do you know that the church is the only place on earth that can actually be the kind of place where you can come as you are? Where you can enter into the building without fear. And the reason you can do that is because at the center of who we are is a God of grace and mercy. The same Jesus who welcomed the woman living in adultery. The same Jesus who ate with sinners and tax collectors. He is the head of this church. That means the doors, they're open to everybody. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you come as you are and you stay as you are, right? Jesus died so that we could be made new. He died so that we could be set free. But the Holy Spirit is the one who's doing that work. So that means we can come here without fear. See, the the unity of the church is a redemptive unity. The unity of the church is a unity with the power of the living God behind it. And it's a unity that carries on into eternity. Did you hear that when we read it earlier? Jesus said in verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. Jesus prayed not just that we would be united right now, but that we would be united with him where he is forever. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you understand that? Look around at the people sitting next to you on that stiff old wooden pew you're sitting on this November day in 2022. And can you believe that that person, you're going to be standing next to them in the presence of the Almighty God someday? That there is going to be a day when we are together and we are rejoicing together, free from tears and pain, free from war and division, free from misunderstanding, free from every other kind of sorrow you can imagine. We're all going to be together in his presence. We're going to be there in that community, the, the, the only place where we can ever truly be accepted and loved. The place where we're all searching for deep down. That's the unity that that God has made you for. And as we close today, I just want to point out this very last verse as we wrap up. He also says, I have made you known to them And I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is uh, an amazing ending to this prayer because it, it shows us the complicated reality of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That at the same time Jesus is praying this prayer, he's also answering the prayer. He's like a quarterback, right, who throws a touchdown pass and then somehow is in the end zone to catch the ball. He prays for our unity. He prays for our protection. He prays for our joy. He prays for all of these things for the church. And then he also says, and I'm going to make it happen. I will continue to work. That's the power of our Savior. This chapter that we're reading is often called the high priestly prayer. And the reason it's called that is because in this passage, Jesus intercedes for us, much like the priests that you read about in the Old Testament. He goes before God on behalf of us. But if you read this last verse, you realize he's never stopped interceding. 
See, the other priests in the Old Testament, they had to go and they had to offer sacrifices every single day for our sins. Every single time there was a new sin. But Jesus, we read in the New Testament, was the final sacrifice. The one that all those other sacrifices were pointing towards. And not only that, but he is the final priest. Because his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection and ascension into heaven means that he is still living right now to carry out this work, to accomplish it in in our lives. He's the one that's going to make this happen in our church. If you come to him by faith, the author of Hebrews says that he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. So that means Jesus is praying like this for you today, right now. And when Jesus prays, he prays with power. His prayer is that you would come to him. That you would be united to him. That we would be united in him. And that because of that, the whole world will know what he's done. Would you join with me? And let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that this prayer, this chapter, Lord, you remind us that you're thinking of us. That your rescue mission on this earth, you had us in your heart. That you thought of us as you were heading to the cross. That you lifted us up in prayer, knowing the trials that lay ahead. And this, mo- this morning, I want to pray for anyone in this room who doesn't know you. I pray they'd hear you calling. I pray for anyone looking for a place to belong. I pray, Lord, that they would know that you created them to belong with you. Lord, would you bless this word? Allow it to sink deep into our hearts. And would you make our church more and more a witness to this unity? Would you make us more and more the kinds of people that when people see us worshiping together, there would be no other answer except there must be a God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to pronounce a Hebrew word, Barak. Can you say that?